Hey, it's John, and I want to welcome you back to the Listener's Commentary on the Book of Acts. The Listener's Commentary is a crowdfunded Bible teaching project that's made possible by the generosity of people just like you. So if you're one of those that has financially supported the Listener's Commentary, thanks a ton. If you're somebody who's been blessed by the Listener's Commentary, I would invite you just to prayerfully consider becoming a financial partner with us. All right, in this recording, we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 24, and it's really part, as I've said, of one interconnected story that all revolves around Paul's trials before various Roman leaders, Jewish leaders, Roman governors, and so on. In fact, this whole last handful of chapters of the book of Acts, I just kind of lumped together under that keyword trials. And by that, I don't mean like just hardships. I mean literal legal trials. Paul is having trial after trial after trial, defense after defense. So here, In chapter 24, where we're at is Paul has been mobbed in the temple. He has been then eventually transferred to Caesarea because there was a death plot on his life. He's arrived in Caesarea and he's being held by the governor of Judea, Felix, while Felix waits for Paul's accusers to bring their charges against him because that was necessary under Roman law. A, A case required the accusers to be present to present their charges. And so Paul is in Caesarea in Herod's praetorium awaiting for his accusers to arrive. And chapter 24 then picks up at that point in verse 1 saying, Now after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and an attorney named Tertullus, and they brought charges against Paul to the governor. So they arrived five days later. So Paul is awaiting for them to arrive for five days. They arrived. You got the high priest, some of the elders, and a lawyer named Tertullus who's going to be the one to formally present the case against Paul. And they're going to bring charges specifically to Felix. So both the accusers and Paul are going to address at the outset of their statements Felix himself. So who is Felix? Well, Felix was the governor of the Roman province of Judea, and he ruled that province from AD 52 to 59. And he had been born as a slave, but eventually gained his freedom and rose to the status of a governorship here in Judea. So by the time we arrive at Acts chapter 24, Felix is nearing the end of his Uh, governorship, and he's on his third wife, who will be mentioned in this story. His first wife was some unknown princess. After that, he married the granddaughter of Mark Antony and Cleopatra, and then he married Drusilla, who's mentioned in this story, and she is the daughter of Herod Agrippa I. We'll talk more about her when we get to her in the story. And Felix was really known as a scheming political man. In fact, Tacitus, the Roman historian, said of him, he indulged in every excess and license, thinking he could do evil with impunity. So he is a brutal, scheming political man who doesn't mind using his power for his own gain. So here come Ananias, the elders, and Tertullus to present their charges against Paul, and Paul then will present his defense Before this man, Felix. Verse 2 After Paul had been summoned, Tertullus, the lawyer, began accusing him, saying to the governor, Since we have attained great peace through you, and since reforms are being carried out for this nation by your foresight, 
We acknowledge this in every way and everywhere, most excellent Felix, with all thankfulness. And so Tertullus opens his remarks in the customary way of providing some honor, even maybe at times a little flattery, for the person who is hearing the case. And Tertullus's words really do have that feel, knowing what we know about Felix, of almost empty flattery. To be sure, Felix had brought a kind of peace to the land by suppressing and putting down various robber bands and some of that sort of stuff. But he also acted with such brutality and ruthlessness in doing it that it's more a peace born of resentment and fear than anything else. Nevertheless, Tertullus opens his charges against Paul with this customary statement of honor towards uh, Governor Felix. Then he goes on in verse 4 and says, But... That I may not wear you further, I beg you to grant us a brief hearing by your kindness. For we have found this man, referring to Paul, a public menace and one who stirs up dissensions among all the Jews throughout the world and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. And he even tried to desecrate the temple. So indeed, we arrested him. So Tertullus then states the charges against Paul. He's a public menace, which sounds sort of trivial perhaps to our ears, but it's really the idea of being like a public enemy. And the proof of that is that he stirs up dissensions all throughout the world among the Jews. So he is a threat to imperial stability and peace, and thus he should be treated as public enemy number one. And he also accuses him of being a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. And so now he is uh, implying that Paul not started a new religion, but he is a leader of a dangerous political sect, the sect of the Nazarenes. Um, is a really pointing towards Jesus, the Nazarene, who is one who was condemned as a criminal by a, a predecessor to you, Felix. That's the idea. So that the Nazarenes are a politically dangerous sect, and Paul is a ringleader among them. And then the third charge really against him is he even tried to desecrate the temple, and any Roman ruler would know how really offensive that was to the Jews. And so he even tried to desecrate the temple, and that's why we arrested him. And then he ends by inviting Felix to investigate these matters. He says in verse 8, by interrogating him yourself concerning all these matters, you will be able to ascertain the things of which we are accusing him. And then the other Jews who were there, Ananias, the elders, also joined in the attack. That is, they joined in giving their support to the accusation, asserting that these things were so. So there's their case against Paul. He is pub a public enemy. He's a ringleader of a politically dangerous sect. He tried to desecrate the temple. So Tertullus has praised Felix, brought the charges, and invited Felix to investigate these things. At that point now, Paul is invited to give his defense. Um, and so Paul begins in verse 10 uh, this way. And when the governor had nodded for him to speak, Paul responded. And he starts again in the proper way by uh, honoring the one hearing his case. So he, he begins by saying, knowing that for many years you have been a judge of this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. And so Paul doesn't give any empty flattery. He doesn't even uh, mention anything specific about Felix himself. What he does acknowledge is that you've actually ruled in Judea for a long time, and thus you understand how things work here. That's really what he's getting at. You know uh, the Jews. You know how things operate. You've been here a long time, and thus I cheerfully make my defense before you. And then Paul 
immediately jumps into his, really his defense in the face of these charges. Verse 11, he says, since you can take note of the fact that no more than 12 days ago, I went up to Jerusalem to worship. In other words, there just wasn't enough time for me to do what they they're accusing me of. Like, I was only in Jerusalem for 12 days. That seems to be the force of what he's getting at. And he tells Felix that you can look that up. You can you can look at when I got off ship. You can look at when I made my trip, right? Like, these are, these are known facts. So you can check that out. There just simply wasn't enough time for me uh, to, you know, do the things they're accusing me of. Not only that, uh, if we want to talk about desecrating the temple, uh, he says, I, I was clean. <laughs> like I, I did it according to the law. So he says in verse 12, and neither in the temple did they find me carrying on any discussions with anyone or causing a riot, nor in the synagogues, nor in the city itself. So like there is zero basis to the fact that I stirred up a riot or a dissension anywhere in Jerusalem in the last 12 days. Didn't happen. Um, nor, verse 13, can they prove to you the things which they now accuse me. Like, there's just no evidence. There's no evidence. Ask them to prove it. In fact, Paul's point really is, is their, their charges are so broad and uh, so unfounded that there's no way they could ever be proven. There's not enough evidence to prove those things. Then he goes on and says, now, here is, here is the issue. Here really is the facts of the case. This is what it really comes down to, verse 14. But I confess this to you, that in accordance with the way which they call a sect. And so now he's addressing that middle charge, a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarene. So I call it the way they call it a sect, but it's just a, it's a Jewish thing. We're talking about a Jewish thing here. So he goes on to say, I do serve the God of our fathers, believing everything that is in accordance with the law and is written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men... Uh, cherish themselves that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. In other words, he's saying this is really a purely intermural Jewish squabble. I, I worship the same God that they worship. I believe the same law that they believe. I listen to the same prophets that they listen to. I have the same hope that they have. Um, we just disagree maybe about the details of some of that, but it's the same thing. And so this is his way to basically say, if what I believe in is a a politically dangerous sect, then they believe in a politically dangerous sect. That's not true. Rome has considered Judaism a, a legal religion, and I'm a part of that. I'm a part of that. And so he's really calling on that to uh, offset that one charge as a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarene. And what he does in doing so, once again, just as he did before the council in Jerusalem, is he narrows down the focus to the central issue the hope of the resurrection of the dead. That's the central issue. And he's narrowing down the focus of that. I, he, wants to, he wants to focus everything on that because he wants to point to Jesus and the resurrection. So he says he's a faithful Jew living according to everything that the Jewish teachers taught. Then in verse 16, he says, in view of this, I also do my best to maintain a blameless conscience both before God and before other people always. So I'm I am actually trying to live as a law-abiding, God-honoring follower of the God of our Jewish fathers. At that point then, Paul begins to describe what happened and led to this moment. And then in doing so, he actually brings some counter charges against them. 
And so this is what he says, verse 17. Now, after several years, I came to bring charitable gifts to my nation and to present offerings. So in contrast to being a pest, in contrast to being opposed and speaking against these people, against this temple, right? And being opposed to them. In contrast to that, I actually came to support them by bringing an offering. This, in fact, in verse 17, is the only mention in the book of Acts of the collection, the offering that we know from Paul's letters he was collecting leading up to this visit to Jerusalem and that he delivered when he first arrived. And so he came not as an opponent or with hostility to the Jewish nation. He actually came with uh, charity and with an offering for them. And he says in verse 18, and in which they found me occupied in the temple, having purified myself without any crowd or uproar. So I was in the temple. I was in the temple with goodwill. I was uh, in the temple in a clean, purified state, not desecrating it. I had no riot or uproar around me. I, I was just a, a goodwilled worshiper purified in the temple when they found me. That's what happened. But, and this is where the counter charges begin to show up, but... There were some Jews from Asia, not even from this province, not even represented by the, these men. There were some Asian Jews. They're the ones that stirred up the trouble. And so he says, according to Roman law, they, they should have been here. Roman law required the accusers to be physically present to bring the charges. And so those Asian Jews ought to have been here present before you and to have been bringing the, the charges if they should have anything against me. What are the charges from them? Or else, verse 20, these men themselves uh, should declare what violation they discovered when I stood before the council. And so these men aren't the ones who uh, had anything to do with what happened in the temple. I stood before them. What are the charges they, they found against me in that moment when I stood before the council? Other than, verse 21, in regard to this one declaration, which I shouted while standing among them, for the resurrection of the dead, I am on trial before you today. And notice how he keeps zeroing back on that moment, zeroing back on that issue. It's the resurrection and specifically the resurrection of Jesus that he wants to focus everyone's attention on. And so these guys need to bring their accusations that they found in that moment against me, or else you need to get the Asian Jews here to bring what happened in the temple and have them bring their charges against me. In other words, this whole court case, we're, we're out of order. These charges are out of order. They're not even in keeping with Roman law. Well, verse 22, Felix knows what's going on. He has a pretty good insight. He's been around the block a time or two. So verse 22, but Felix, having quite accurate knowledge about the way adjourned them saying, when Lysias the commander comes down, I will decide your case. And so he, he adjourns the case, he tables it, and says he's going to wait for Lysias to come down to get more intel from Lysias. And this really seems um, intentional, legitimate, but also a stall tactic, because this situation is actually quite tricky and quite sticky for Felix. Why is that? Well, because Ananias and the elders represent the ruling aristocracy of Jerusalem, and Felix needs them to work with him for his rulership to go well. Paul, on the other hand, is a Roman citizen, and he has certain rights and certain privileges because of his citizenship. Felix, I'm sure, could tell that Paul did have a certain point that this case 
uh, really isn't following proper protocol unless these Asian Jews are there. Um, but if he acquits Paul, then all of a sudden he puts himself kind of at odds with the Jewish power base. And yet if he condemns Paul while he placates the Jewish power base, he runs the risks of revolts and uproar not only here locally, but in various places throughout the world where Paul is quite popular because he has a more exact knowledge of the way of Christianity. So Felix realizes, man, this is a little bit of a tricky political situation. Let's just delay a little bit. We'll wait for Lysias to come and we'll see where it goes from there. Now, whether he ever called Lysias to come, whether Lysias ever did come, we are never told. We don't know what happens. So we never know if Lysias comes all we know is what happens in the rest of the story as this story unfolds. And what happens is Paul pretty much ends up waiting and waiting and waiting for two years for his case to be dealt with. And it's never dealt with. Here's what happens. Verse 23. He gave orders. We're going to stall, adjourn the case, table it, wait for Lysias. And so he gave orders to the centurion for Paul to be kept in custody and yet have some freedom and not to prevent any of his friends from providing for his needs. And so, in other words, keep Paul in light, protective Roman custody. He's a Roman citizen. He's got rights. There has been no um, condemnation on him, right? And so um, let's keep him in light, protective custody. And don't prevent some of his friends taking care of him, bringing him food, bringing him clothes, whatever he needs. Who are some of his friends? Well, he's in Caesarea. And remember, just a couple weeks prior to this, three weeks or so, Paul had been there and spent some time with Philip and his daughters and the believers there. In other words, Paul's well-connected in Caesarea. There's a whole church there in Caesarea that could help take care of him and support him. And so, uh, Paul is going to have access to them and they're going to have access to Paul while he's in custody there. Uh, and so Felix actually honors Paul's citizenship and honors uh, kind of the nature of the, the case since it seems so trivial to him by, by allowing him to have uh, visits from friends and them to take care of his needs. Now, some days later, so time passes, verse 24. We don't know how long. Uh, Felix has perhaps been up to Jerusalem and now been back. We, we don't really know what's gone on, but some time has passed. This is sort of like a meanwhile, you know, days later, verse 24. Some days later, Felix arrived with Drusilla, his wife, who was Jewish and sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And so at some point, Felix and his wife come back down to Caesarea, or perhaps they come to the Praetorium. We don't know where they were before, but they come to wherever Paul is at. Um, they invited Paul to speak, uh, and Paul spoke to them about faith in Jesus. He preached the gospel to them. Um, and we've already mentioned Drusilla as Felix's third wife. Here she's noted as being Jewish. That is, she has some Jewish blood flowing through her. She is the daughter, as I mentioned, of Herod Agrippa I. Herod Agrippa I is the guy from Acts chapter 12 who beheaded James and arrested Peter. Um, that story, well, this Drusilla is his daughter. And so there is at least a, a certain amount of Jewishness about them and that family. They've been around for a while. So Felix is now married to her. And they come and they hear Paul preach about Jesus and he preaches the gospel to him. Verse 25, but as he was discussing part of his preaching about faith in Jesus, discussing righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, 
Felix became frightened and responded, go away for now. And when I have an opportunity, I will summon you. In other words, um, as they were listening to Paul speak, because he enjoyed hearing Paul speak, he, he, Paul got a little too close to home when he started talking about righteousness. That is justice, making sure you're, you're doing justice in the way you're carrying out your governorship. Are you actually acting with justice according to what's right and according to the law? Are you acting with self-control? Well, he's on his third wife and the other two were traded in for a better model, basically. So no, self-control has not been his thing. He has a reputation for evil and excess, as Tacitus said. So self-control is a bit of a problem. And the judgment to come, that you're going to be held accountable, that this little judgment that you've got, you're waiting for me on, that's small potatoes compared to the real judgment that's going to come, the ultimate judgment when God holds all men accountable. Well, those topics hit so close to home to Felix that he became af afraid and he sent Paul away. And if I ever want to listen to you again, I'll summon you. At the same time, verse 26, he was hoping that money would be given to him by Paul. In other words, he was hoping Paul would bribe him pay his freedom. Just bribe me and get out of it. Why would he assume Paul had money? Well, Paul had mentioned he came bringing offerings and alms and charitable gifts to his nation. So somehow Paul has money. Somehow he has access to money. So he's hoping that some of that money might find its way to himself. And so he's hoping for Paul to, to pay him some money, pay him a bribe. And therefore he used to sin for him quite often and talk with him. In other words, he would invite Paul to him with the hope that somehow, maybe eventually Paul would get weary of it and just pay him off and somehow Felix could make all this go away. That's what he's hoping for. Didn't pan out. Uh, didn't pan out for Paul super well. Didn't pan out for Felix super well. Paul never paid him a bribe and thus Paul sat there for two years. Look at verse 27. But after two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus and Felix, wanting to do the Jews a favor, left Paul in prison. And so his final act of quote-unquote goodwill to the Jews was to leave Paul in prison. And so here we are, two years after Paul arrived in Jerusalem, and Paul is still here. Paul is still waiting. His case still hasn't been resolved. Two years of sitting and waiting. But remember, the Lord Jesus had appeared to him two years earlier and said, just as you've testified to me in Jerusalem, you will testify in Rome. And so now we're waiting. And this again, as I mentioned, is part of this one long story where we get to watch God work providentially and sovereignly in his leadership of his provision for and his direction of Saul. He's promised Saul's going to get to Rome. But two years later, he's still not there. Um, and this reminds us that Sometimes God's providential care, God's sovereign control uh, works at a very different timetable than ours does. Usually that's the case. Usually it's slower than we want. I'm sure Paul thought when the Lord told him that two years earlier, awesome, I've been dying to get to Rome, can't wait to get there. And here he is two years later, still waiting. But God's in charge and God's not done yet. Uh, and God will get Paul to Rome, sovereignly speaking, it's just going to look a whole lot different, and it's taking a whole lot longer than Paul originally thought would be the case.